Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have another insightful episode for you this week. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. N.T. Wright. Dr. Wright is the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England and one of the world's leading Bible scholars. He now serves as the Chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. For 20 years, he taught New Testament studies at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford Universities. Dr. Wright has written many award-winning and best-selling books, including his most recent, The Day the Revolution Began, which explores the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus. He travels and speaks often across the world and has been featured on a variety of major media outlets such as Dateline and ABC News. But when it comes down to it, Tom Wright loves Christ and his church, and he has committed his life to helping equip church leaders all over the world. On this week's episode, Tom Wright and I discuss the mission of the church, both as we see in Scripture and as it is unfolding in our present day. Tom helps us think through the historical and biblical understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus and why that understanding is so very important for the church in the 21st century. Tom also shares about the freedom Jesus provides us from the powers of the world and how we as church leaders can help our people live into that freedom. And what's more, Tom has a special free offer for our church leaders listeners. It's an opportunity to study scripture with him, even if you're unable to fly over to Scotland. So be listening for those details. I tell you, this is such a rich and meaningful discussion. I'm excited for you to get into it. So let's dive right into my conversation with Tom Wright. Tom, I just want to thank you for being with us on our Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for making the time. You're very welcome. It's good to be with you. Excellent. Now, um, the majority of our listeners are pastors and ministry leaders. So, So this first question might seem like something that everyone should understand well, However, many times what we believe are things that have kind of simply been passed along to us, but maybe we've never really wrestled over. So I I want us to start off with this question, because in the Western church especially, we often relate the crucifixion of Jesus primarily to our personal salvation. And our personal salvation is very important, yet there is a bigger story happening here. Can you walk us through the historical and biblical understanding of Jesus' crucifixion as the climax of Israel's story, and why is that important to us today? I know it's a big question. (laughs) Huge question. Um, It's not just one book. It's about four books needing to be written to answer that. (laughs) Let Let me see how quickly I can say this. And of course, when you speak quickly, you always give hostages to fortune. So sorry that I may just miss out some things, because it does need some nuancing. Anyway, um, yeah, my sense is that in the Western tradition, by which I include Catholics and Protestants and all the different varieties of Protestants, we have by and large over the last thousand years emphasized a platonic message about souls going to heaven, which has made the biblical idea of heaven and earth being the twin halves of God's good creation and of the new heavens and new earth being God's intention. We have allowed that to be lost sight of, And in particular, we've lost sight of the resurrection, because if I am a disembodied soul, I leave my body, I go to a disembodied heaven, uh, why would I want a body back again? And indeed, many Christians um, get really puzzled about that, that they say the phrase, the resurrection of the body, if they say the creed, but many of them think that that's just a sort of old-fashioned metaphor for going to heaven. 
and they often have, as I say, a basically platonic vision of heaven. Now, in the great story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's not like that. It's about creation and new creation, and about the role of humans within that. What is the role of humans? The role of humans is to reflect God's image into the world and reflect the praises of all creation back to God in articulate and glad worship and praise. Um, humans were meant to stand at the cusp, to stand on the edge of heaven and earth and, and belong in both, because God wants to belong in both, and God calls humans to bear his image. It's like a temple. Um, heaven and earth combined are like a temple, and the last thing you put in a temple is an image in order to show the worshippers who the God is and in order that the God may be present in that world. Well, that's what Genesis 1 is saying. And that's what then is renewed in the gospel. Paul says we are to be renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator, as Colossians chapter 3. And so the problem, of course, is that humans mess up. It's not just that we sin, it's that we worship the wrong things. Instead of worshipping the one true God, the creator, we worship bits and pieces of the creation, whether it's forces in the creation like money or sex or power, or whether it's specific objects actually making idols and worshipping them. And we give away our own responsibility and power, our own stewardship to these powers, which then say, thank you very much, I'm now in charge. And so as Satan says to Jesus in the Luke and Temptation narratives, I actually run all these kingdoms and I give them to whoever I want. And the answer is, well, yes, after a fashion, because humans have given the enemy their power. But what happens is that because it is by humans worshipping idols and then sinning that the idols get that power, God has to deal with human sin in order to rob the idols of their power so that then new creation can begin. That is the story that the New Testament is telling. Now, I've cut that very short. I've missed out all the stuff about God's call of Israel, which is very naughty of me. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> just done it in order to make it brief for you. But that's broadly what I would say. No, I, cer I certainly appreciate that. And I appreciate you having to kind of cut that down into, <laughs> into a brief response. Now, when we look at Jesus' crucifixion and we take into account Israel's story— what did the cross of Christ achieve? Okay, thanks, because that actually sets me up for all the bits I missed out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, amplified in Genesis 15 and 17 and then 22, the call of Abraham in Genesis is God's means of putting right the problem of Adam. That's how the entire Israel's story is meant to work. Abraham isn't just an example of somebody 2,000 years before Christ who happened to believe God's promise. Abraham is the one to whom the promises were made that God would do the new thing, would rescue humans, and so would rescue the whole creation. And the promise of the land to Abraham was a foretaste of God's intention to promise him and his seed the whole world. You see that very clearly in the Psalms, where the promise to Abraham is then broadened to include the whole creation, like in Psalm 2. But Abraham and his family are themselves part of the problem, and Genesis makes that very clear. Abraham doesn't then just sort of sail through life and think, okay, we'll make the world better here and now. Abraham is a very contested and conflicted character, and his family are absolutely down to 
the stories of Jacob and Laban and then Joseph and his brothers. And, and yet God's purposes are coming through as though God is saying, OK, I've called this family. They are going to have a terrible time because they are bearing my purposes of rescue for the world. But they themselves are carrying the disease that the world is suffering from. And so the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament has those two strands woven tightly together. Think of the story of David and Solomon. Think of the prophets. Think of, well, Samuel, but then the great prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. The temple was the place where God said he would put his name, and yet Israel itself committed idolatry. So that you have this extraordinary parallel between what happened to Adam and Eve. They're given this garden, and they commit idolatry, and they get kicked out of the garden. And Israel is given this garden, which is called the land of Israel, and they commit idolatry, and they get kicked out. So you've got a double problem, that it's as though a lifeboat sets off to rescue a boat that's in distress, and then the lifeboat gets wrecked on the rocks. Now what's going to happen? That is the problem. And then out of the heart of that in the Psalms, and particularly in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, as you uh, dear Americans would say it, um, (laughs) then what you have is a sense that somehow in God's purposes, God himself is going to do a new exodus, a new liberation from this slavery. God is going to rescue the lifeboat in order that it can rescue the main boat, as it were. And so Jesus comes as Israel's representative Messiah in order to do for Israel and the world what Israel and the world couldn't do for themselves. And as the New Testament looks back at that event, the cross and resurrection, the New Testament writers say, this is what it looked like when God himself came back at last and gave his own life to rescue Israel and hence to rescue the world. So the story of Israel is the story of how God the creator intends to rescue the creation. The story of Jesus is how God comes in person to rescue Israel in order to achieve that ultimate end. And the way that works out through the Holy Spirit, applying the gospel the victory of the cross and the dealing with sin on the cross and the launching of new creation in the resurrection, applying that to humans, to men, women, and children, is saying, this is now how the project gets taken forward. Here are these Sermon on the Mount people, these meek, these humble, these uh, brokenhearted, these hungry for justice, these peacemakers. This is how heaven and earth are going to be brought together. Now, again, I've said that in about three and a half minutes flat, and and I could go on about it all night. In fact, I sometimes do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as you talk about this, the launching of new creation, that launching of new creation is is much more than just us getting ready for, you know, heaven at some point. Uh, Absolutely, because it isn't really that at all. It's getting ready for the new earth when heaven and earth will be one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 I would donate that as a free gift to every pastor I could come across. God's purpose is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in the Messiah. And then Ephesians 2, the anticipation of this in Jew and Gentile coming together. And then in Ephesians 5, the sign of this in men and women coming together in marriage. And no doubt there are many mysteries there, as Paul himself says. But this is the point, not to leave earth and go to heaven, but that heaven and earth be together at last and forever. So that the idea of Jesus' second coming 
is not to snatch us away from earth, but as Paul says in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord, the King, Jesus, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him to subject all things to himself. That's a quotation, combined quotation, but particularly from Psalm 8, which is about humans being given responsibility for God's world. The point about being citizens of heaven is that Rome had lots of citizens spread around the Greek world. Philippi, where that letter was written to, was a Roman colony. Rome didn't want those citizens coming back home to Rome. Rome was already overcrowded with a food problem and all the rest of it. The point of being a Roman citizen in Philippi was to bring Roman civilization to northern Greece. And the point of being a citizen of heaven is that we are to bring the life of heaven to earth. That is the whole vocation. It's beautiful. So how then does the idea of worship and the idea of mission come together in the people of Jesus? Yeah, worship and mission are absolutely bound together because it's basically, as people say, God has a mission. It is God's mission, and God's mission then has a people who are the agents of that mission. It's God doing it, and we are summoned to be caught up in that. But you can only do God's mission if you are worshiping the Creator God. Because if you try to do mission without constantly looking back with gratitude and awe and love at the God who made you, um, then your mission will become a pale reflection of whichever political and social agendas you happen to have in your head and your heart at the time. And some of them may be good and and most of them will be flawed. (laughs) Right. Um, And by the same token, if you're worshipping but then don't think there's any mission going on, then I'm not sure who you're worshipping, but it probably isn't the God we know in Jesus and by the Spirit, Mm. because this God is the God who says in Genesis 1, let there be a world that is other than himself. Let there be light, let there be giraffes, let there be humans. Um, This is the generous, outgoing God, and to worship him is to be schooled and equipped to be generous, outgoing people ourselves. Excellent. So so what are some, some practical ways that, that you've seen the church getting right, kind of living out the mission of God? Oh, wow. All sorts of things, all sorts of things. I mean, I'm a great believer in old-fashioned evangelism. You can get people into a tent or a building or a hall or a room and just tell them what God's done for them in Jesus. And if people around are praying and have been praying for those people and will pray through the meeting, then uh, just telling them that is the heart of it all, because the mission of God lives by transformed lives, and those lives have got to come under the sound of the gospel. So all that I'm going to say has that at its core. It's not either you do that or you do something else. It's a both and. But having said that, and you know, when I was Bishop of Durham, I I sponsored and pioneered uh, evangelistic efforts of that sort. I was proud to chair one of the last largest evangelistic efforts that has been in the northeast of England since the days of Billy Graham. Um, and that, that's a wonderful privilege to do that. But at the same time, or and at the same time, I've seen Christians in very poor areas. And where I was working in, in the northeast of England is one of the most impoverished areas of Britain, the old industrial rust belt with uh, lots of child poverty and alcohol abuse and crime and all the uh, shops boarded up and all that stuff. Horrible, really. And, and people really going about in fear. And I've seen the church 
go and rent a property on the high street that nobody was using and turn it into a mothers and toddlers center, an old people's drop-in center, um, uh, a literacy training center, because a lot of people actually are functionally illiterate in societies like that, Um, a credit union where people who the banks won't touch anymore can go and actually help get their finances sorted out, and above all, a place which has a sense of prayer and possibility at the heart of it. Um, And to go into a place like that and see people coming in and realizing this is a place which is actually transforming lives and communities and starting small businesses. And, And one which I'm particularly fond of, and I've mentioned in some of my writings, was when the government reorganized some of the schools in the Durham area. And there was one school they didn't need anymore. They'd sort of rationalized it. And some local folk from one of the churches said, actually, we have a good use to put to that. And they went to uh, see people who work with, particularly young people, with really difficult special needs, people with serious physical disabilities, handicaps, call them what you will, people who otherwise would be in a home somewhere where they would be slumped in front of a television all day with nothing really creative to do. And they made it possible to have workshops and art studios and so on in this old school so that these young people, teens and 20s, with severe, you know, people who couldn't walk, people who could hardly talk properly, etc., would come to this place. And it was a, a deeply prayerful community. And they would do art and it was beautiful art and they would mend furniture people would bring broken chairs and tables and these young people would be taught how to fix them and to see these broken human beings fixing broken furniture and getting the sense of pride and satisfaction out of it i just thought this has the fingerprints of the gospel all over it and i i honor the people who do that kind of thing. And it gladdens my heart. To, I mean, these are just two examples out of 200. But it's this kind of thing which really makes a difference in the community and makes people say, what's going on? Why are these people doing it? And the answer is because we believe in new creation and we want to bring signs of new creation to birth in our communities where it's really needed. Amen. And, and that's responding to the love that Jesus poured out Absolutely. For us, and, and extending that love to to those around us and those in need, that's beautiful. Tom, the the world that we live in, you know, there's there's a lot of of power that's trying to push in, and um, and you've even written about how you know that the powers kind of get angry whenever we are trying right. to live the kingdom life. Right. In Galatians one four, says Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according yeah. to the will of our God and Father. And yeah. and many people, that they'll read that, and they almost kind of um, see this passage as maybe a way of escape, that, you know, salvation through Jesus is sort of, you know, sucking us up and out of this evil world in which we find ourselves. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but really, Scripture's declaring that through the sin-forgiving death of Jesus, we are being liberated from the power of of the present evil age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In order to understand it, I mean, this is the problem that we have traditionally in the West taken phrases which belong in Jewish eschatology and we've turned them into Platonic cosmology. Mm. So the present evil age is a Jewish way of speaking about the present age and the age to come. And the age to come is not away from earth and in somewhere else called heaven. It, it's, it's the present age is rumbling along and the point of the gospel 
is that unlike what many Jews of the time thought, that the new age would just appear and then the present age, the old age, would stop, the whole point of the New Testament is that the new age has broken into the present age and God is already doing the new thing that he'd promised even while the old age is still rumbling along. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 that uh, Jesus is already reigning and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet because resurrection has happened in Jesus Resurrection will happen to all Jesus' people when he comes again. And we live in between those two. So that if you, I often, when I teach Galatians, I start with that verse and I pair it with the verse at the end of, towards the end of Galatians 6, where Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. What matters is new creation. And those two verses, Ephesians 1, 4, and then the one at the end of, of chapter 6, they go together because it means that the present evil age, the powers that have ruled the present evil age, have been defeated on the cross. This is what I say. It's so important to see how the two halves, if you like, of, of Galatians 1, 4 actually belong together. It isn't just he died for our sins. It's he died for our sins because by dying for our sins, he defeated the power of the dark powers that have held the human race and the whole world in slavery. This is all Exodus language. It's all about the Pharaoh being overthrown because Jesus chose Passover as the moment to do what he had to do because that's what needed to happen was liberation, the victory. Yeah. So what do you say to the person who says, yes, I believe that, that Christ um, claimed the victory through his death and his resurrection, and yet we live in a world that you know, there's power and greed and keeps fighting back against us. How, how do yeah. we live out that um, victory? I, I want to say that, that the greatest statements of that uh, victory, or some of them anyway, uh, are in Ephesians and Colossians and the book of Revelation. Now, Ephesians and Colossians are written when Paul is in prison, uh, not knowing when he's going to get out, and fully aware of the powers of the present age. Revelation is written when John is in exile on Patmos, quite possibly under punitive exile. And again, he is celebrating the victory of Christ over the powers. So th these are not written by comfortable early Christians who are having a good time of it because Jesus has risen from the dead. They are written by suffering Christians mm. who are celebrating the fact that their suffering actually demonstrates that uh, they are living at the place where the tectonic plates of the old age and the new age grinding together. And they're saying, yes, this is where we have to be, because this is actually how the work of the kingdom is extended. I, I was just two or three days ago, I've been with some Orthodox theologians, that's Orthodox with a big O, with uh, Eastern Orthodox, and, and some evangelicals in dialogue in Cambridge in England. And to hear people from the Egyptian Coptic Church talking about the martyrs that they have had in their church in the last five years and the way in which the church has celebrated the deaths of those modern martyrs, it puts us Westerners to shame. Yeah. That reminds me of, of um, what you've written. Um, you said the victory of the cross will be implemented through the means of the cross. Yeah, and uh, I wish I didn't have to say that because I don't like suffering any more than anyone else does, and right. I would like a nice, comfortable life. I, you know, I'm going to turn 70 in just over a year, and I think it, I ought to be playing golf and, and playing with my grandchildren and so on, and, and, and I'll do that as well. But I think we are all called in different ways to take up our cross 
and it, there are many, many, many different ways in which that happens. But I'm I'm in touch with um, one or two younger clergy who I've mentored, and to to see them going through the struggles of ministry and the the problems and the times when the church itself seems to be fighting against its own clergy and all kinds of things going on. Um, And I have to say to them, you know, I'm sorry, but I did warn you when you said you wanted to be ordained (laughs) that this this stuff is going to happen and that there will be wonderful, amazing, glorious moments of celebration and victory. And there will be times when you feel that the weight is crushing you because that's actually how the stuff works. And Paul himself, and I've just written a biography of Paul, which is due to be published next February. Um, Paul himself in 2 Corinthians says that there was a time when he felt as though he had to despair of life itself, that he felt so unbearably crushed. And yet out of that comes this great new surge. And the next thing he writes after that is a book called Romans. <laughs> and you think, right. oh my goodness. If he had despaired of life itself, we'd never have had Romans. And I think he had to go through that in order to come to the place where he could write that amazing, astonishing letter. Yeah, no, no that's that's good, Tom. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about Paul and, and that suffering, uh, I think of the early church as it was unfolding the book of Acts really wrestled with yeah. this tension, right? That the yep. victory of the cross comes through the means of the cross. So yep. what can we as ministry leaders learn from the early church that connects— with the world in which we find ourselves today? I think one of the things particularly is this constant sense of a mixture of misunderstanding and sudden revelation. And even though Europe and America is sort of post-Christian culture, which does make it different because, I mean, you know, just say in square brackets, we have to remind ourselves that when Paul went around the Mediterranean world from city to city, when he first visited Philippi or Thessalonica or whatever, nobody there had the slightest idea that this new way of life was even thinkable, let alone possible. Because it is a whole new way of life, not just a few funny things to believe. Um, And so we at least know in the modern West that there has been something called Christianity, even though we don't totally understand it and we're not very good at it. Um, So we're kind of trying to draw people back to that. However, having said that, we too face massive misunderstandings. One of the things that impresses me is when Paul is debating with people, you can just see how what he wants to say makes sense, but from where they're coming from, they will distort it, they will misunderstand it, they will shout at him, they will yell at him, they want to beat him up. Um, And he could explain himself, but they won't give him the chance. I, as a Christian teacher, have found that again and again and again, both within the church and outside it. So it it may be paradoxical, but it seems to me the life of doing your best to say the truth and knowing it's likely to be misunderstood is a constant thing. And that means inevitably, as I follow Paul's journeys around reading Acts, and as I follow the the, the passages before, the the, the early apostles in Jerusalem, they are saying to these Jewish people who are longing for God's kingdom, yes, God's kingdom is here, and this is what it looks like. And they ought to say, oh, yes, of course. And of course, a lot of people do. A lot of people do believe. But equally, a lot of people feel that their power is under threat. And so here's one of the things particularly, which we have to take very seriously, The riot in Philippi starts 
because Paul exorcises a slave girl, so her owners have lost their hope of gain because she's telling fortunes. And so they then produce a political and a religious charge. So you've got economics and politics and religion all bound up together. Likewise, when Paul's in Ephesus, the local makers of silver shrines of Artemis are going out of business because Paul is saying that these aren't actual real gods. And so a lot of people are believing the gospel and are giving up buying these little silver shrines. And so it's an economic problem, and immediately they turn it into a political problem with ethnic overtones, oh, these are Jews, so they would say this, and then with religious and political overtones. And I think we need to recognize in ministry today that where the gospel actually bites in our society will have economic, political, philosophical, religious, ethnic, um, all sorts of overtones. It isn't just, in other words, a matter of a rationalist apologetic with some people being so stupid that they can't get it. It's always got all those other overtones as well. Wow. So um, in speaking to pastors, um, do you encourage them to lean into those conversations? Well, it's going to vary from place to place and from time to time. Um, It depends entirely on the situation. Um, As I say, I've just come from from actually two different international conferences with people from widely differing social contexts. And you cannot tell somebody in Egypt to preach the gospel on the street in the same way that I would like to see people preaching it in Britain. Mm because uh, granted the situation in Egypt, you have to be wise as serpents as well as innocent as doves. The trouble is the church has often done neither of those things. Right. Um, and, and there are many countries in the world where uh, you know, I, I get a regular prayer letter from one particular missionary organization, and they go through week by week different people working in different places, and sometimes they say, we're just going to give you the initial person. We're not going to tell you who they are. We're not going to tell you their job but they're facing this question, this situation. So, I mean, so there's no one size fits all. Right. But in America and in Britain, it seems to me we have for too long allowed the enlightenment of the 18th and 19th centuries to set the pace, which has said religion and real life are in two totally different categories and Christians teach religion. So please don't mention politics, society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the danger with taking the break off that one and saying, no, actually, life is all of a part. And if if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, which is an old evangelical slogan, which is very true in exactly this context. But the danger with saying that is that then people get up in the pulpit and they preach whatever their favorite newspaper just likes to harangue people about. And actually, a Christian political theology is more complicated and difficult than we have often realized. And it isn't just a matter of saying we've all got to be holy anarchists, nor is it just a matter of saying uh, the elected officials in every country are right, whatever they do, so you just got to obey them. It's, you know, I would start with John 18 and 19, which is Jesus' dialogue with Pontius Pilate. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God meets the kingdom of Caesar, and see what Jesus says to Pilate about kingdom and truth and power, and see what happens to Jesus as a result, and then that's how the victory is won. And then in prayer, say, Lord, how can we in the church as a whole, not necessarily me in my pulpit on Sunday, but how can I be training the people in my congregation so that they will be people who will speak for Jesus in Caesar's world today? Because that's what we need to have happen. Amen. That's excellent. 
Tom, we've we've got many pastors here, ministry leaders listening. Um, is there any any encouragement that you could give them as they are facing um, their week in and week out ministry? Maybe something we haven't touched on yet, but just something you'd yeah, like to leave yeah, with pastors. Yeah. Golly, it's it. Uh, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because again, we're all in different situations. I I think I really do want to say. God is always doing new things, and we can plan, and we must plan. You know, people say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> I would say, if you want to make God weep, tell him you haven't got any plans. <laughs> um, but then uh, you've got to pray, and you've got to plan, and then you've got to expect God to say, thanks very much for doing that. I'm actually now going to do something just six inches to the right of what you had in mind, or five feet to the left of what you were planning, because... God will take our prayer and our hopes and our goodwill, and like the two on the road to Emmaus, he will do something different with them. You know, we had hoped that this and that and the other, and Jesus is actually, guys, open your eyes and see it's going on, and this is what it looks like. And I think God does that to us in ministry again and again and again. And we have to have the humility, and this is really tough when you're in ministry and trying to run a church and difficult personalities and so on. You have to have the humility to recognize that God sometimes uses to surprise us people and things which we weren't expecting. And that isn't a carte blanche for any crazy idea that comes down the street. You know, I think you've got to keep a firm grip on, on, on the reins, as it were. Um, but uh, I think... You know, trust the God of surprises. And I've often said to people when they say, oh, you know, this is getting me down. There's uh, I just week after week and another Christmas coming and I, how am I going to get through this? And, da, 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 da. and uh, some advice somebody gave me ages ago um, is just Isaiah 40 to 55. Read the whole thing at a run. Come home, switch the phone off. Don't look at a screen. Just get Isaiah 40 to 55 pray for wisdom and then read the whole thing through it a run and then the next day do it again and then the next day do it again do that every day for a week and if that's not pressing your buttons do it with romans i mean the whole of romans um straight through it a run without any phone or, or television nearby and just allow it to wash over you and, and you have no idea what that's going to do, because it's not going to work just cognitively so that you've now got these three ideas. It's actually going to change something in your imagination. And a new, new opportunities, new possibilities may come up out of left field, and you may not even notice them for a week or two, but they'll be coming. So these are the sort of things I say, particularly to clergy who've been at it for five years, ten years, and are kind of scratching their heads and saying, is this it? Um, it's not working the way I thought it was. And, of course, there are a thousand other things to do as well. Um, and there are wise ways of refreshing oneself in ministry. <clears throat> and we need each other. We need fellowship with other, uh, both clergy and laity and so on. But th those, those are places I would start. Now, I'm a Bible teacher, so I would say this, wouldn't I? But actually, I think uh, this is the kind of thing we all ought to be doing. No, that's good. I, I love that. And I really encourage our listeners to to dig into that, just as you said. And and to uh, allow the Spirit to encourage us and help us to yeah. see the fresh yeah. things that God is doing, the new things that God is doing in our midst. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Now, now, Tom, you've been working on a special resource over the past uh, few years. It's a growing resource. You've been creating these video courses that can be taken by people all over the world. 
And yeah, it's a really exciting project, I think, for you. It's a way for you to kind of extend the the reach of your impact and how you can teach and share with people um, because people can just log on and um, and take yep. these courses. Yep. So you and your team at NT Write Online, um, we're super excited because you have a special gift that you're sharing with all of the listeners here at Church Leaders. You're giving wow. everyone a free video course on Paul and his letter to Philemon. But then also, Tom, you have just finished up, you just completed this really powerful course on the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, that was so exciting. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah. I imagine. Tell us a little bit about about that course. Well, well, I mean, it, all, the way all these courses work is that um, uh, I talk in sort of fifteen or twenty minute bursts. I think twenty minutes is the maximum, and sort of twelve or fifteen minutes is the minimum. So, uh, basically, I'm sitting in my study talking to the camera. So, if you don't like talking heads, then this isn't for you. But actually, <laughs> in the twelve or fifteen minutes or, or eighteen minutes, as sometimes is. That's enough to get some stuff to chew on, but it's not too long to overwhelm you, as it were, like a full hour's lecture might be. Um, and so that's how they work. And I forget how many lectures there are in the ACTS course now, something like 30 or, or 35 or something like that. I'm not sure. When we did Romans, we did it in three parts, and that's about 50-odd lectures. And, whoa, my goodness, that was hard work. <laughs> did them in th- three days flat. But then ACTS is such a page-turner. And as, you know, the way Luke has written that book it just draws you along and pulls each time there's another amazing thing happens and then you turn over the page and oh my goodness now they're being thrown in jail and now this is happening and now um some new missionary opportunity is, is opening up and then the, there's great sorrows and great joys and it's all bundled up together but the overarching theme of course right from the start is that this is what the kingdom of god looks like when it's getting going and the disciples say to Jesus, is this the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? And now I have a debate with one of my colleagues here in St. Andrews because he thinks that Jesus' answer is, uh, no, it's not yet, but there's some work for you to do in the meantime. And I tell him, I think that's wrong. I think the whole point is, yes, this is how the kingdom is being restored, but it doesn't look like you guys thought it would. What it looks like is 12 minus 1, 11 puzzled, nervous people suddenly finding they have the energy to do new things, that God is with them, that people get healed and saved and driven out into mission, and there's great persecution and so on, and everyone is taken by surprise, including the apostles themselves, but God is on the move, God is on the march, and the world is being changed. And at the end of it all, after the shipwreck, which is a tale in itself, of course, because Um, The shipwreck functions in the book of Acts, rather like the crucifixion scene functions in Luke's gospel, that this is the moment when the dark powers seem to have done their worst. And Luke says they were all thoroughly saved. He uses the word saved, Mm. the Greek word sozo, again and again and again at the end of that chapter. And then what happens is Paul arrives in Rome and he is announcing the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus, Acts says, openly and unhindered. This is about the fact that whatever the powers do, whatever the sea monsters do, whatever Caesar does, God's kingdom is going ahead, openly and unhindered. That's the message of Acts. Amen. I love that. I love that. And so thank you so much for um, offering these courses to us. I know that... I 
uh-huh. hope people value them. I yeah. mean, if you look at the website, people will see, as well as the free gift of Philemon, um, the, the, the courses, um, th- there are ways in which if people are running a church discussion group or a group, or especially if there's folk in the two-thirds world who, who don't have the resources in their church to enable individual members to, to sign on for this, because there's obviously a lot of work goes into it and the filming and goodness knows what. Um, and the written resources, um, then they can do special deals for groups who who need a special package. So um, all the details of that are on the website. And uh, it's been really exciting for the Wisconsin Center who run it and myself to see um, we've got people from well over 100 countries now, and uh, it's, it's spreading. It's That's very, awesome. very exciting. That's awesome. I love it. And you are giving us a special offer on Acts of the Apostles as well. So you're giving all of okay. our listeners 60% off of that course. So that's a huge savings. So we encourage our listeners um, to go to churchleaders.com slash NTWrite, and they can get the discount code for the Acts course, which you just finished up. And right. also they can get access to the free um, Philemon course. So we just want to thank you, Tom, for sharing that with our listeners. What a blessing that is. We certainly appreciate that's that. That's great. Thank you very much. Uh, very good to be talking to you. Yes, thank you so much for taking your time with us. We appreciate you, and uh, God bless you. Okay, God bless you, and warm greetings and prayers to all your listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.